stand with me today, please, and reach for your Bibles if you don't mind. I appreciate this worship team today, this choir this morning, Pastor Tony, for leading us into the presence of the Lord. So grateful for the freedom of worship, the talent that we have on this platform every week that helps us to have an atmosphere that's conducive for worship and for the Word. I'm going to ask you to go to the book of Hebrews today, please, if you don't mind, the book of Hebrews chapter 6. Go to 1st and 2nd Timothy, keep going to Philemon, then go right there to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, I do appreciate you being here today. What a wonderful presence of the Lord we've experienced so far this morning. I just am grateful that we can join together this setting and have freedom to worship and freedom to praise the Lord and sense the liberty of the Holy Spirit today. Hebrews chapter 6, I'm going to pick up in the 13th verse and I'm going to read through verse number 19. Here's what the Bible says and I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible, verse 13. For when God made a promise to Abraham... Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying to Abraham, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. So after he, or after Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Verse 16, For men indeed swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is for them, an end of all dispute. Thus God, determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability, or the word immutability there speaks of something that's unchanging. The immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. Look at verse 19 and pay careful attention here. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. Hope he's talking about there is the hope that's found in Christ and which enters the presence behind the veil. Let me just conclude with verse 20 since that's the end of the chapter. Where the forerunner has endured for us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Look at verse 19. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. Somebody say an anchor. Anchor of the soul. Both sure and steadfast. I want to take a few moments today. I'm going to preach on this thought. Anchors for the soul. Anchors for the soul. Let's pray just one more time quickly and I'll let you be seated. Father, thank you for the word today. Thank you for the witness of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for the work that I sense that you're doing today, and thank you for the freedom of worship that has been present in this auditorium this morning, this sanctuary. God, I feel very strongly today about this word you've dropped in my heart to preach to these people. And I've sensed an urgency this week, God, to stand here and to preach this truth. And I want you today to... Help me preach it like I've sensed it this week. Holy Spirit, guide my thoughts today first and foremost and guide my speech today. God, govern what comes out of my mouth, but I pray that you'll give these people 
understanding, a spirit and a sense of revelation and knowledge of the truth that I will lay before them, God. Let what I say, God, be clothed in love and humility and compassion and grace. When we walk out of here today, I pray that we will say it has been good to have been in the presence of the Lord. Thank you for what you're going to do today for somebody that's going to be encouraged and blessed and strengthened, God saved and set free. And we praise you for it in Jesus' name. The church said amen. God bless you today. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Thank you, Pastor Tony. An anchor is a device that is normally made of metal. And it is used to secure a vessel to the bed of a body of water in order to keep it from drifting due to wind or current. There's another type of anchoring that is called kedging, and that's a nautical term. And it is when an anchor or anchors are thrown out in front of a vessel And it's used to guide the vessel through treacherous channels of water. So there is one form of anchoring that secures a ship. And there's another form of anchoring that guides the ship. So that when the wind blows and the waves beat, an anchor will secure a ship at sea, or when the vessel finds itself in dangerous and difficult waters, the anchor will guide it through those waters. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is safe. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is secure. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is steadfast. As long as the anchor holds, the ship is safe-guarded. As long as the anchor holds, the ship will stay. I'm reminded of a story in Acts chapter 27. As the Apostle Paul is on a voyage on board a boat to stand trial before Caesar in Rome to answer the accusations that had been made against him. And the Bible tells us that that boat that they were on, Aunt B encounters this horrific storm, a violent storm. The Bible calls it a Eurachlodon. We know it as a nor'easter. Wind and rain and storm surge. The Bible says in Acts 27 and 29, Then fearing lest we would run aground on the rocks, we dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed that day would come. The men on that boat that day needed something to secure their ship. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that this present day and age that we are living in I believe that it demands we have some spiritual anchors that will secure our souls. Life and its daily struggle demand that we have some anchors. 
modern-day society and its deviation from the truth demand that we have some anchors. The size of the waves and the strength and the direction of the wind demand that we have some anchors. See, if we don't have some spiritual anchors for our souls, spiritual drifting, falling away, a moving away becomes a real possibility, but some steadfast and sure spiritual anchors will secure our soul in an ever-changing society. Hebrews chapter 6 is written to a group of people who were on the verge of drifting. Now, let me just say this before I go any further. I, I've got several anchors I wanted to preach, but I'm going to preach about one anchor today. As I moved in to study this week and begin to look at different anchors, the Holy Spirit just stopped me at one and asked me to just relay that one anchor to you. So this is not going to, this is not going to take long. And I feel such an urgency and such a compelling of the Holy Spirit today, such a weight to preach this. So just bear with me as we make our way through it. Hebrews chapter 6 is written to a group of people who are on the verge of drifting spiritually. It's pinned to Jewish believers who had stepped out of Judaism and the rigor and the routine of all the law that they had been bound by they had stepped out of Judaism and into Christianity, a relationship with Christ. But they were wavering, and they were contemplating going back and stepping away from the new life they had found in Christ and going back to Judaism for, for fear of persecution that was awaiting them as they made a commitment to serve Christ and leave the tradition and the routine of the law that was found in Judaism. Theologians tell us and suggest to us that the Apostle Paul is also responsible for the book of Hebrews. I'm not here today to debate that or to dissect that, but just for sake of argument, I'm going to preach from that vantage point, from things I've studied. I believe Paul did pen Hebrews. And in Hebrews chapter 5 and in chapter 6, Paul, first of all, confronts those new Jewish believers for their lack of spiritual growth. They're not babes now in Christ. They have been moving along in their faith. And he, if you read chapter 6, he speaks of leaving the elementary principles and moving on to, to, to other things. And he confronts them for their lack of spiritual growth, which no doubt has contributed to their decision to possibly walk away from what they have found in Christ. He also compels them to move forward in their faith and to leave those elementary things behind and start growing in their walk. And then he cautions them. He cautions them about spiritual apostasy or a falling away or a drifting away or a falling back or a backsliding. And Paul is trying to convince these people 
That there is more to be gained in Christ than there is to be lost in Judaism. And he, he argues for the superiority of Jesus Christ based on three facts. That number one, he is greater than the angels because they worship him. That number two, he is greater than Moses because he created him. Number three, he is greater than the Arianic priesthood because he offered up one sacrifice for all time. And he, number four, is greater than the law, Paul tells them, because he mediates a better covenant with them. You get down to Hebrews chapter 6, that text that I read to you. It is so rich and it is so full. I mean, my mind was boggled as I pulled commentaries out and resources out and tried to wrap my mind around the depth of those verses. It is so full of such amazing truth. If time would permit me today, I'd unpack some of that and try to get you to grasp what I was trying to grasp as I sat down. But just in a nutshell, here here is what Paul announces and articulates to those people that day. And to the folks that are that he's writing this to, these Jewish believers considering walking away and going back into Judaism. He announces to them God's promise that is found in Christ. He announces to them God's power that is fulfilled in the covenant that he made with us. And he announces to them And speaks to God's people who have a future that is connected to a hope that is only found in Christ. You understand today that the only hope that we have is in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was Socrates who said to ground hope on false assumption is like trusting a weak Anchor. The only hope we have today is found in Jesus Christ and Him alone. It was the songwriter who would say, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly holding on dear to His name. It's only found, the only hope we have today is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul would write to the Colossians in Colossians 1 and 27. He would say that to them, God willed to make known what is, what is the riches of His glory amongst the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. 1 Timothy 1 and 1 would say this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. By the commandment of God our Savior and the Lord Jesus Christ our hope. He would write in Hebrews 7 and 19, For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there was the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. It was the psalmist who would write in Psalm 39 and 7, And now what do I wait for, Lord? My hope is in 
you. The only hope we have today in an ever-changing world is the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope we have in a post-Christian era is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope you have today in the midst of your family, in the midst of your struggle, in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your questions, in the midst of your doubt, the only hope we have is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope we have in a society filled with racism and violence and tension, it is the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope that the church has today, it's not found in a program, it's not found in a man, it's not found in a conference, but the only hope we have today is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Lord Jesus as that anchor is the anchor that holds. In spite of the storm, the anchor holds. Though the ship may be battered, the anchor holds. Though the sails may be torn, I'm telling you today, the anchor holds. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And the songwriter would say, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Man will disappoint you. Man will let you down. Man will fail you. But I know a rock today. I have an anchor today. I anchored my soul in him. I anchored my life in him years ago. Yes, there's been difficult days. Yes, there's been trials. And yes, there's been tests. But one thing has been constant through my life, Gene Turpin. And that is the person and the work and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm anchored today in the hope that I find in the Lord. Come on, somebody, and Praise his name today. Hallelujah. Ah, praise the Lord. There's hope in him today. I love that verse. I just quoted it to you a moment ago. In Colossians 1.27, to them, God will to make known. What are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, in us, the hope of glory? And the writer of Hebrews compares the hope that we have in Christ to an anchor of a ship. He realized that hope accomplishes for the soul. Hope accomplishes for the soul the same thing that an anchor does for a vessel. It makes it safe, it makes it safe, makes it fast, makes it secure. And in verse 19, the writer compares the hope that we have that's only found in Christ to an anchor, or an anchor of a ship. And typically most anchors are outside of the ship. If you want to anchor the boat, you don't drop the anchor in the middle of the boat. You drop the anchor on the outside of the boat. And most anchors are found outside of the ship. And I want to tell you today that that which steadies us and secures us cannot be a part of us. It must be external to us. We don't have the strength and we don't have the power to anchor our own souls. So what is it, Pastor? It must be, it can only be, it has to be 
the Lord Jesus Christ, nothing more and nothing less. So permit me today for one moment, just a few moments rather, to give you an anchor. I've got some more of these anchors, and I may preach them as we get on through the month. As we get closer to Christmas, I'll, I'll transition to some seasonal things. But the anchor that I want to talk to you about this morning, all of these anchors that I have prepared, are anchors that, that come only through Christ, but they're found in the hope that we have in Christ. Let me give you one anchor this morning. I call it the anchor of unwavering confidence or faith. Trust, reliance upon Christ. Here's what you need to know this morning. That your faith is going to be tested. Can I get an amen or a head nod or something? Some of you are sitting here today and you're further down the road in life than some and you could witness to and testify to the fact that your faith has been tested before. I'd like to stand here today and announce to you and tell you that you won't have any more tests of faith, but that wouldn't be true. You cannot escape this reality. It's a part of life. Your faith is going to be tested. I'm reminded of Luke chapter 22. Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he says to him, Simon, Simon. Now notice there, he didn't call his name once, twice. Anytime in scripture you see something repeated, the Lord's trying to get attention. Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. What did the Lord mean when he said to Simon Peter that Satan had desired to have him, that he may sift him as wheat? He was talking and referencing a process that would happen when the harvesters would bring the grain to the threshing floor. They would bring the wheat and the chaff all together to the threshing floor. They would put it in what is called a sieve. We would know it today, maybe in your home you've got a sifter. And in that sieve they would put the, the harvested grain along with the other stuff that came in, the chaff, the debris, the rocks, the sticks, they would take this sieve and they would begin to shake that sieve back and forth. They would take that sieve, they would beat it against the ground. And a sieve or a sifter would separate wanted elements from unwanted material. That makes sense. So as they shook the sieve or beat the sieve, all of the good grain would fall down through into this barrel that was beneath it. And the only thing that would be left in the sieve or the sifter would be the chaff that came in with the wheat or the harvest. You'd have the rocks, you'd have the debris, you'd have the stick, sticks. And when Jesus looked at Peter that day, 
and said, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, and I've prayed for you. Can you imagine? Jesus, I mean the very Son of God, in a private place, praying. I believe that my Bible tells me that that happens on a regular basis. That he ever liveth to make intercession for me and for you. And when you feel like nobody else is praying for you and you can't get a hold of the pastor or the youth pastor or the music pastor, I know somebody that is interceding and praying for you. And it's not a preacher. It's not a televangelist. It's not even a friend. Listen, it is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. It's the Lord Jesus Christ that is praying for us. My God, what a thought. Here's what he's saying, Peter, or Simon Peter. Satan wants to take you and shake you up. Simon, Satan has desired to have you, that he may shake you up or beat you up or shake your faith up or beat your faith up. And the, here's this enemy's desire. His desire was to shake Peter's faith to the point that the only thing that remained was spiritual rubbish in his life. going to happen. Your faith will be shaken. Just because it's shaken doesn't mean it has to crumble, though. What did James say in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3? My brethren, count it all joy. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's why people laugh sometimes, tongue-in-cheek, and say, don't pray for patience because you're going to get tribulation. That's the truth. If you pray for patience, God's going to bring some testing to your faith so that it produces patience in your life. It was Peter himself. Peter, he wrote two epistles. And when I read 1 Peter 1 and 7, it dawns on me that he's writing from perspective and an experience. Here's what he said, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested through fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, he said. I wonder if he had in mind when he penned that the time that Jesus would say to him, Simon, Simon, Satan has desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. He'd go over in 1 Peter 4 and 12 and say this, beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing has happened unto you. Peter knew a thing or two about his faith being tested and tried. Did Peter's faith fail? I'd suggest to you it didn't fail, but I would suggest to you that it did. It was weakened and he gave in in a moment of temptation and denied the Lord. And when Jesus said, if you follow that out, I pray for you that your faith will not fail. And when you have returned to your brothers, he was saying, Peter, there's going to be a time you're going to miss the mark, you're going to mess up, but I'm going to bring you back. And just because your faith is tested, just because your faith is tried, and maybe there's times that you crumble underneath the weakness and the pressure, it doesn't mean you got to throw the towel in and quit. God's saying, listen, I'll bring you back. I'll restore you. I'll make you new again. 
Oh, and I feel a preacher in here today for just a minute. Watch now. And tests and trials come in all shapes and sizes. They come in all forms and fashions and facets. There are seasons where there are these massive tests that just we don't think we can take it anymore. There's other times there are these maybe a minor testing or trial. But regardless, your faith will be tested. And you have got to be resolute and have unwavering confidence or faith that God is going to take care of you. And every test and every trial, listen to me, there's one purpose the enemy has in mind. It is to get you to doubt the goodness and the faithfulness of God. You do understand that doubt is a, a tool that he has in his arsenal he's been using for thousands of years. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis. And God creates man from the dust of the earth. Is that what the Bible says? He breathes into that man's nostrils the breath of life, and man becomes a living being. He puts man into a deep sleep, performs side surgery on him, James Hanks, pulls a rib out and creates a woman. Has created this beautiful garden called Eden for them to live in. Gives them dominion and authority over everything and gives them instructions while in that garden that they can eat from every tree in that garden except one tree. It's the tree in the midst of the garden. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the day that you eat it, you'll surely die. Genesis 3, the serpent. Satan comes in the form of a serpent and he slithers up to Eve. Watch this now, I'm talking about doubt. And he says to her, Eve, did, did God really say? See it? You see the seed of doubt that he's sowing? Did God really say that you can't eat from every tree in the garden? Eve says back to the serpent, no, that, that's not what he said. He said, we can eat the fruit from the tree. All the trees of the garden except one tree. It's the tree in the midst of the garden, and it's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God said we couldn't eat it because the day that we do, we will surely die. And Satan says to her, you won't die. Seem casting doubt on what God had said. God's, now watch this, this is, a, this is a laugh here. God's just afraid. I've never known God to be afraid of anything or anyone. Now, the Bible tells us in John 8, that the devil was a liar from the beginning. Is that what it says? And abode not in the truth because there's no truth in him. And when he speaketh a lie, the NIV says this, when he speaketh a lie, he speaks in his native language. There's only, oh God, I need to preach right here. There's only one language the devil knows. Listen, I'm not bilingual. I'm, I'm fluent in English. I got a D in Spanish and hit the road. Hola, como estas? I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very basic. I like to go into Mexican restaurants when I go to eat and try to speak Spanish to them. And all I say back is, si. They'll say something in Spanish, I'll go, si. 
Caramba. Oh, no. See, no, no. El Stupido, I can say that. <laughs> Muy Stupido. I'm not bilingual. I can even do a phrase or two in French. If we weren't podcasting, I'd do it, but people might listen to it and think I'm a lunatic, so I'm, I'm going to spare you French today. Bonjour. So I'm not bilingual. I know one language. It's English. The devil, listen, he is not bilingual. He doesn't know blessing. He doesn't know encouragement. He doesn't know positive speech. The only language he knows is lying. So this ought to give you some hope today. Every time that sorry rascal slithers up to you and starts saying to you, your children are never going to get saved. You're going to get sick and die with the disease. And the list goes on and on and on. You've got to know the only language he knows how to speak is a lie. And every time he tells you something, you throw it back in his face and say, devil, the Bible tells me the only thing you know how to speak is a lie. Oh, hallelujah. He says, God's afraid. God's afraid? He's just afraid, Eve, that when you eat it, your eyes are going to be opened and you're going to be like him. See the doubt? See the doubt that he sows right there? That he gets Eve to question and to doubt the goodness, the faithfulness, the provision, the promise, and the power of God? That's how the enemy works. And if you wait until the testing of your faith comes to try to get strong, it's too late. It's too late. But you have to have this this unwavering confidence and faith that regardless of what happens, listen, here's how, you, here's how you fight the doubt of the enemy that he comes to sow. If it's unwavering confidence, this anchor that we need to have, we have to have confidence in spite of or faith in the face of. My last point and I'm done. Regardless of what happens and in spite of what happens, I'm confident in who God is. That speaks of his person. I read something this week in my devotional time that said he sits on the circle of the earth. The Bible said above the earth. How much more powerful can you get than that? And regardless of what happens and in spite of what comes, I'm confident in who God is. I'm confident in what God said. That speaks of his promise. I'm telling you, God would never lie to his children. He's not a man that he would lie or the son of man that he would repent. If he said it, he'll do it. If he's spoken it, he'll make it good according to Numbers 23 and 19. Regardless of what happens and in spite of what comes, I'm confident who God is. That speaks of his person. I'm confident what God said. That speaks of his prom- promise. And I'm confident in where God is taking me. That speaks of my purpose that I have. You've got to have faith in the face of those tests of faith that are going to come. Pastor Tony, come on to the keys and help me. I'm going to land this thing. I'm going to preach about five more minutes, but I want to just come help me land this. The Apostle Paul, Acts chapter 20. He feels this compelling to go to Jerusalem to continue the ministry God's called him to. And he says, 
I go bound by the Spirit. Now, if you read Acts 20, it's verses 22, 23, and 24. He says, I go bound by the Spirit. There's not a capital S. He's not speaking of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of his, of his self, Spirit, his inner man. I go bound by the Spirit to Jerusalem. Not knowing what's going to happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me that in every city, change and tribulations are awaiting me. Do you think that stopped him from going? Do you think that caused his faith to buckle and to break? No. Here's what he said in verse 24, Acts 20, 24, one of my favorite verses, Kenny Hancock. He said, but none of these things move me. I'm not drifting here. I'm not swaying here. I'm not, I've got this unwavering confidence and faith in the face of. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself. That I may finish my race with joy and the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I know what I'm going to face, he said. I know what's awaiting me when I get there. Unwavering confidence. Maybe that's why he would go over and write to the church at Philippi from a jail cell and say, and say now, knowing this, being fully persuaded or convinced Philippians 1.6 that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus coming. persuaded. He said, I'm convinced that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. Here's what that says. Whatever God has started in you, I'm telling you, it may look like he's forgotten about it. You may be in a place where circumstances are contradicting the will and the plan of God, but God sent this pastor by to tell somebody today, if God has started something in you, you need to be convinced that God will finish it. last biblical illustration. Man, thank God I didn't have more than one today. We'd be here all day. If you read Hebrews verses 13, 14, and 15, he talks about Abraham. About obtaining the promise. What was the promise that God gave Abraham? He'd be the father of all living, right? That he would have, a, he would have an heir. He would have a seed. It would come through his son Isaac, right? And when we understand that from the time God spoke that to Abraham, he waited 25 years. I mean, we can't wait 25 minutes for something. We went into Olive Garden the other night. It looked like it was early. 
I thought we'd beat all the crowd. We'd eat like a bunch of older people about 5 o'clock. I figured we'd be okay. We get there, it's packed. A 15-year-old says, we ain't waiting more than 30 minutes. I said, really? And you're going to drive us where and pay for what? We walked in. Kelly's there. She's got a little beeper, a little thing in her hand. Turned around and says, 30 minutes. We ain't staying. We're leaving. I said, no, we're not. That's too long. I'm hungry. I said, well, this is my time. We leave and get in the car and drive somewhere else and put our name in. It'll be time to sit down. Relax, young fella. It's going to be okay. Now, truth be known, I didn't want to wait either. But I didn't feel like hearing him keep on, so I said, well, it's all going to be fine. We're good. And inside, I'm going, God, can we find somewhere else shorter? So 25 years. We don't like to wait, do we? Anybody like to wait? Ever notice when you're in a rush, you got to get somewhere, you hit every stinking red light known to man. It'll make a preacher think things he probably shouldn't think. 25 years. I need to move quickly. I don't want to keep you long. And Romans chapter 4 also details for us some of this story. And that's what it says in Romans 4, it's verses 19, 20, and 21. That Abraham, his faith didn't grow weak. When he considered his own body, the deadness of his body, that he was 100 years old. God said, you're going to have a child. So at 100 years old, the Bible said he was good. Listen, his body was good as dead. Do you have any 100-year-old men, 90-year-old ladies want to have a baby? It's physically nowadays that just couldn't happen. But he considered his body. He didn't grow weak in his faith when he considered his body. 100 years old, the deadness of it, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. I mean, do I have anybody close to 90 ready to have a baby in here, ladies? No. But he didn't, he didn't grow weak. The Bible said he did not grow weak in his faith. And he wavered not, watch thou, he wavered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in his faith, giving glory to God. One version says it like this. He praised God for the blessing even before it happened. You know why his faith got strong? You know why? You know why his faith was strengthened? Because he didn't look at everything around him, but he gave thanks and gave praise to God, that God, what you said you're going to do. And he never wavered. Verse 21. Being fully convinced. take a lap right here, Harold said. I feel God touching me right here. Being, he didn't say partly convinced, did he? <clears throat> fully. Fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. He wavered not. He was strengthened in, and he was convinced that whatever God said he was going to do, God would perform.
perform his word. Abraham anchored his soul. Abraham anchored his heart to the very promise of God. God said, you're going to have a baby, Abraham. And at 100 years old and his wife at 90, God honored his word. I've got to tell some people in this place today, you're wavering, you're struggling. You don't know if God's going to do what he said he would do. Your faith is being tested. Your faith is being tried. I want to encourage somebody today, anchor your soul to the promise of the word of God that he is able to perform that which he promised. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.